Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. My guest today is Dr. Chris Waddell. Dr. Waddell is one of our newest diplomates and one of our newest GCSS board members as well. He's also the past president of the Oklahoma State Board of Chiropractic. In that capacity, he has some unique information he can share with us. So I think you'll find this episode very insightful and hopefully inspiring as well. So without any further ado, Dr. Chris Waddell. Waddle, thank you for joining me today. Hey, good to see you, Dr. Fowler. How are you? Good. Uh, so let's start off like we always do, and I'll have you tell everybody kind of how you got into chiropractic and how you got into Gone State Chiropractic. Right. So I was um, in undergraduate college. I had no intention of being a chiropractor. Uh, my family has a business that's been in our family for 70 years now, uh, the funeral business, actually. So I went to school to become a funeral director, joined my granddad in the family business. And uh, when I was in school, when I was an undergrad, I got in a pretty severe car accident, although I walked away from it. Uh, I got kind of beat up. And so at the urging of our, our insurance agent, I'm from a small town in Oklahoma. Our insurance agent said, hey, have you have you gone to see the chiropractor to get a checkup? And I said, well, no, I've never been to a chiropractor. He said, well, you should go because if you got hurt in the wreck, it'll cover it and you'll, you'll be taken care of. And so actually a family friend of ours was a chiropractor in our town. And uh, I, I was good friends with him, but I never went as a patient. So I went and uh, he checked me out and adjusted me. And he was, he was an older... TCC grad, uh, but he was a good adjuster. He was a diversified adjuster, but he was specific. And uh, he started to adjust me. And before that time, as a, as a kid growing up, I had low back pain and headaches quite often. And our medical doctor just said, give him Tylenol, he'll be fine. But it, it never got better until I went to the chiropractor and he started to adjust me from the car wreck and my health improved. And I started to ask him about it and he gave me more information. And it just was very intriguing to me that I had this lifetime of issues. And once I started going to the chiropractor, they all went away. And I was no longer taking medication for pain. And so I was very interested in that. And just some events, events led up to each other. And I decided not to go into the family funeral business. And I decided to go to chiropractic school. And so it happened relatively easily once I made that decision and the chiropractor that I was going to helped me, I, I didn't know anything about it. I said, where do I go to school? And at that time, Parker Seminars was a very big deal in this chiropractor's life. And so he said, well, the, the only school I would send you to is Parker in Dallas. And so I said, I, sounds good to me. I didn't know any different anyway. And so we got information from Parker and my dad and I went down and toured the school. This was back in 97. And the rest is history. I mean, it all just it all just laid out. And so I was there and my family, my granddad gave it his blessing. So nobody was upset. And uh, I started Parker in, in 98. And so that's where that's where I got my start. How did you uh, how did you end up in the Gonstead world? So that's a good question. When I was at Parker, the thing I liked about Parker is they taught nine different techniques, nine different named techniques, and they were all. Mm -hmm required courses. And 
I think Parker or Gonstead was in our fifth trimester. So we'd had diversified and I believe Thompson technique before. And I, I, I liked both of those. Uh, but then when I got into Gonstead work, it just really made sense to me from the fact that they could explain everything they did. It was reproducible. You could teach it to people anywhere in the world and they would pretty much come up with the same levels of, sub, of subluxation, the same method of correction, and they could explain it in a way that made sense. And so we started going to Gonstead Club. The upper, the upper classmen said, hey, you guys come to Gonstead Club and learn more about it. And we thought, that's pretty cool. The upper guy, the old guys wanted us to come to their club. Well, then we learned they just needed warm bodies to practice on, uh, which was okay. Uh, we, were, we were willing to do that. But once, once we got in there and understood it, it just made so much sense. And it really solidified to me is that that's the approach I wanted was something I could, I could explain to people, no matter who they were with, with such a long history of Dr. Gonstead getting results over the last, since 1928 or 23, um, I couldn't argue with that. And it was proven and, and effective. And so that made sense to me and I just never looked back. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I already knew this, but we started school about the same time, and so I know that as you were going to seminars, you were going at the same time I was. Right. And um, it was it was great training. I still think about some of the things that I learned. That um, I had students ask me some questions, and I thought, you know, that answer was actually an integral part of what I learned, and it's something yeah. we've been forgetting to teach you, and we need to start teaching you again. So it's it's just funny. I realized we had really good training back yeah. then, and so it was um, oh, it was a good yeah, time was- to learn. It, it was phenomenal. I mean, when we were in school and involved in the Gonstead Club, we started going to Gonstead seminars with with Dr. Dr. Alex and Cox and Doug Cox and John Cox and Poe and Sherry and all the people that we learned from. And it was just a it was just an amazing time where we went, man, we'd have 40 people on a plane from Dallas going to Atlanta, Chicago, wherever they were giving a seminar. And it was just so that foundation that we got from from that teaching uh, man, it, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything because it just taught us the foundations of Gonstead and then chiropractic, the philosophy, uh, of course, the Gonstead system. Uh, man, it was just an amazing time to learn. And we just soaked it all up and we would do without food, but we'd go to seminars and it was wonderful. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I remember how many people can you cram into a hotel room, a chief hotel oh. room? Oh, <laughs> A lot. It's it, like a clown car. It, it was a lot, and I, I wouldn't do that now. But I mean, back then we did it. We'd, we'd sleep in the shower if we had to. We didn't care. Yeah, yeah. And, and the funny thing was, even then, we would do that because we recognized the value of what we were going to learn. That whatever it Absolutely. takes, if I got to sleep in the car, I want to be yeah. here because this is going to make me someday. Right, right. Absolutely. And, and we we would do whatever it took to get there. Well, then from there, you have another experience that most people don't have. Then you ended up on the uh, Oklahoma State Board. So how did that come about? Because most of us just practice and are like living our own little world. So to get into right. that right. world, usually you don't usually fall into that world by accident. Yeah, I, I had I had that was nowhere on my radar screen. I, I started practice in 2001, probably about the same time you did. And, yep. you know, roll, rolling along, our practice was growing. Uh, we were we were doing we we're doing great. And in 2011, I, I just I realized I was needing a little bit of I needed some some feeding, if you will. I was been in practice 10 years. Um, I won't say I was burnt out because that, that's not right. I just wanted I wanted some philosophy. I wanted something to feed me as a chiropractor. 
And uh, through social media, through Facebook, I found out about the New Beginnings uh, seminar in New Jersey. Who's, they've been around, I think they've been doing it now for 30 years. Just an incredible group of chiropractors who are still in practice, some 40, some 50 years. Uh, and they just are all about chiropractic philosophy. So um, I'd never been to the East Coast. Uh, and so I just decided to go to New Jersey by myself. I didn't know anybody out there. And I went to that seminar and I, I, had, I had met some of the New Beginnings folks on Facebook. We had chatted. I think I was one of the first people from Oklahoma to come to their seminar. And they thought, what's this guy doing out here? You know, uh, anyway, I made my way to New Jersey. I flew in. I got on my first train, never been on a train, made my way <laughs> to the coast. And I met these wonderful, wonderful people who uh, just lived and breathed chiropractic philosophy. And they, they were still in practice seeing hundreds of people per week with, with just their hands, just adjusting. And when I was at that seminar, in fact, I saved my notes. I want to show this, see if you can see this on the screen. You can't read it, but because it's really small. But in this corner of my notes right here, I had written down at some point during that seminar that I want to make a big change and I want to make a big influence. And I want to try to get on our state board because at that time in Oklahoma, and it's still kind of this way now, we have a fantastic chiropractic history in Oklahoma. I mean, Dee Dee Palmer started a school here back in 19, whenever he left Iowa, he ended up in Oklahoma. So we've, we've had a long standing tradition of chiropractic here, but there is a splinter group here that was pushing for pharmaceutical inclusion. And, and that was just, I'm not anti-medicine, but I just feel like as a chiropractor, we have something so special that we need to keep it the way it is. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful the way it is. We're not restricted in any way. I don't feel. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was my initial drive to get on the board was to protect what it is that we do and not water it down with medicine. And so that was my sole driver. Um, so that was in April of 2011. I got back home and I looked into it the next week. I contacted the, uh, our state board and I said, Hey, I would, I'm willing to serve, uh, what do I do? And the executive director emailed me back and said, well, it just so happens that your, our state's broken up into five districts and my district seat was coming up open. Uh, that, that person was terming out. And mm -hmm. so she said, if you'd like to get an application and you need to do it this week because the application window is closing. And so I, I hurried up and filled out all the paperwork uh, sent in all my information and, um, then, then that was it. And I didn't know, um, what would come of it. I didn't know anything that would happen. And so it turns out that only one other person had submitted an application. And when my application came in, uh, the, the, go the governor at the time had just been elected. So I was serving along currently with with her terms, it's that we serve at the pleasure of the governor. And it turns out that her, her aunt is a patient of mine. And so <laughs> I didn't call in that favor, but I think what happened was the governor got my application and talked to her aunt, who's, you know, from this town, my town and said, do you know this guy? And her aunt said, yeah, he's my chiropractor. And so because of that, I'm sure it helped me, but I didn't ask for that favor. I didn't mm -hmm. write any checks. I didn't do anything like that. I just sent in my application 
and uh, I got I got put on the board. I think three months after I went to that new beginning seminar, I had my first board meeting. So it happened quick, but I feel like it was, as Dr. Parker used to say, it was naturally right. I, I didn't force anything. I didn't do anything under the table. I just simply ask a question: How do I get on the board? And it happened. When you when you first started going to like your first board meeting, what what kind of a what kind of vision or how did how did you think things were going to go? I'm sure reality was different, but what how did you think it worked? And, and what were your ideas of, of what that was going to be like? Right. So I guess in my mind, I thought it would be a lot of arguing, a lot of fighting, a lot of name calling, if you will, just a lot of <laughs> angst and tension. Uh, it was none of that. When I got to my first meeting, the fellow board members that were there were very welcoming and they were they were glad I was there. Um, we there was a there was a sense of camaraderie that I didn't know there would be uh, different practice styles. Uh, obviously, we don't all do things the same on the board. We're not what I what I learned is that you, you kind of check your your personal agenda at the door and you're there now as a board member to protect the public. And our mm -hmm. job was to enforce the Practice Act of our state, uh, regardless of political affiliation or philosophy of chiropractic. We were there to do our job. And so I learned that that we were in agreement on most things. Um, we were chiropractors first. And and no matter if we did certain things in our practices, we all understood that we, we loved our profession. And the way we could serve our profession was to ensure that the public was protected with good, great chiropractic care in our state. And so uh, we, I really learned a lot as far as we were in agreement on, on 98% of the things that came through our, our, our meetings. Uh, and in fact, n not once did anybody on the board say, you know, uh, we need to start doing drugs and surgery in our practice. Um, not once. And we had those discussions because it would come up before the board. But um, to my surprise, there were more people that thought like you and I do uh, as far as keeping chiropractic separate and distinct. And I was very, very happy to see that in our state who had been kind of on the scope of, of expansion. Mm -hmm. So that was a good thing for me to, to, to learn and understand. And, and we ended up becoming really good friends. And I still talked to a lot of my former board members uh, every few weeks. I mean, we became a pretty tight knit group and, and you rotate new people in, you know, board members, our terms were staggered. So we would, we serve two, four year terms as long as the governor likes us. <laughs> and so, you know, some would rotate off, some would rotate on and, and there was always a pretty cohesive group. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. I didn't plan on asking you this question, but it's uh. I just came to my mind um, and it's a totally different departure from what we were just talking about, sure. but I had a lot of people ask me about this. And so with these, all these guys making themselves famous doing Y strap adjustments on the internet, oh. um, and the fact that no chiropractic school teaches that technique, right? Is that a state board issue? And why mm -hmm. do states allow chiropractors to do things like that? So it, it is. And that came up um, kind of that Y strap uh, there. There's a, there's a, technique that there's a name for it now that I won't mention, but we all know what we're talking about. Uh, okay. Chiropractor in Texas, if you will, yeah. made it famous. Um, so that was real bothersome to me that I was president of the board at the time. Um, and so we went to our legal counsel from the attorney general's office and said, Hey, can we, can we 
can we outlaw videos of adjusting? Uh, because that can create a problem. I know some people are all about it, but from a regulatory standpoint, that can be an issue where people are videoing these crazy adjustments. And then if an injury happens, uh, man, you're in trouble because now it's all over social media. Yeah. So, <laughs> excuse me. What our what we learned is that our from our attorney general legal counsel is that uh, we couldn't do anything about that because it was a violation of free speech. And mm -hmm. there was there was issues that were bigger than our state board that we had no uh, jurisdiction over. And so uh, we couldn't do anything about that as far as the, uh, the videoing and the, and the marketing. The other issue is that with the that type of a, of a manipulation, I'll call it, uh, it didn't violate any state practice act. And there mm -hmm. wasn't anything we could do about it. And they would ask us questions like, well, um, what is he doing that? Uh, violates the Practice Act, or what are those people doing that violates the Practice Act? And we, we we really didn't have an answer for that because, I mean, there's different techniques that aren't taught at the schools that people still do that aren't illegal or, uh, I guess, unless the patients are filing complaints, nobody says anything. And so that was a little harder than we anticipated. Um, so that, that was an issue that we faced. That, that definitely came up. But it, it ended up being that we just didn't like that technique, but there was no grounds to outlaw it. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm having a lot of thoughts. But that's very interesting that that's, that's where we're at. Because it seems like, I know we think of, the, of state boards as having like this um, unlimited power to do anything right. that they want and just run ramshot over you. And yet here's an issue where they probably need to do something and they're totally mm -hmm. handicapped. Can't do it. Yeah. You, and that's exactly right. So, so the state boards uh, in every state, no, no matter what state you're in, you, you are, your, your, your task is to enforce the current chiropractic law. And so that's set by the legislature. And so if you, if, even if you don't like something in the law, you still have to enforce it as, until mm -hmm. that law gets changed. And so that's where getting good people on your state board can make a difference because just for instance, we had an issue where um, I wasn't, we weren't happy with the direction the CCE has been going with basically unlimited power over school accreditation. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm not saying they don't do a good job in what they do, but there's been some concern that maybe there just needs to be another option. Mm -hmm. Not do away with the CCE, but maybe there could be, Another accrediting agency that develop, is developed that would, would be as, as, you know, they could do a great job in accrediting our schools. And so one of the things that we did on our state board is we modified the language through the legislature that we remove the CCE only requirement. So what that does is it opens the door now to say, hey, we're not anti-CCE. We still take their students, obviously, because they're the only game in town. But we open the door to say, look, if another accrediting agency gets developed and we feel like they're uh, doing a good job, we can accept their students as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you can make those changes from a, a legislative standpoint to say, hey, how can we open this up to more than just the, the current power brokers that are here? And that's, mm -hmm. that's where we need people to get involved is to say, look, 
we're not saying that any of these programs are currently bad, but if we can open competition amongst these people, then we can create change. Whether that's CCE, the national board exams, any of those people that we currently use, again, I don't think we need to do away with all those people, but I think we need to open the competitive market. That way we can force change if it's needed. Yeah, well, I think that's another question that people have is how are the CCE and the national board connected, not officially, but they kind of are. Um, right. How how does that relationship work? And uh, and I guess how would, if we were to be another accreditation agency, how would how would that work as well? Would right. we need another so, example? I mean, they're they're definitely connected. I, I you know that the schools are accredited, of course, by the CCE, and then the schools teach according to the national board, and so. There's definitely some some cohesiveness there with the CCE and the National Board. Uh, what are we teaching? What? How do we make sure that the schools are accredited properly? <laughs> and then, excuse me. And then the boards basically test off of that. And so, what what would happen is, and I think what people don't understand is that the state boards are the only people in the country that can issue a license, period. They're the only people that can issue and regulate your chiropractic license, not the national board, not the CCE, not the ACA, not the ICA, not the schools. They only do what the state boards tell them they need. And so I think when people understand that, they go, oh, wow, I didn't know how that worked. You know, we, we are always in fear of the school or what is what are the schools going to say to the students or they're the ones that they don't control anything. They're they're honestly, the schools are, are puppets. They do whatever they're told uh, because they have to teach according to what the boards say. And the boards are controlled by people on the state board and their current members. And so when you understand that the state boards are made up of people chiropractors, and you can be one of those people that serve on the board, you then can control what gets taught to our students, what we get tested on, how we're accredited. Um, it's it's really um, <laughs> as simple as it sounds. I didn't understand that either until I got on the board that, wait a minute, you know, when we were students in school, we were, we were kind of scared of the administrators and da-da-da-da-da, but they don't hold the power. I mean, they, they don't. And, and the, the people that hold the power are the people on the state board. In fact, the national board, National Board of Chiropractic Examiners has has the most. They hold the money in our profession. So they have big bank accounts from all these fees that students pay in for their tests. And so at that point, because they have they have the money, they do control a lot of the narrative. They have they have the voice that we hear. But if 25 state boards across the country said, you know what, we're not going to accept the national boards anymore because we don't like how they're doing it. Well, guess what? The national board's going to wake up and go, oh, my gosh, we can't have we can't have even five states saying that because then all of a sudden they start to lose their control over uh, how these students are tested. And again, I'm not picking on the national board. Uh, there's some good people there and I served with with quite a few of them. But when we realize that these monopolies that get created in our profession can be challenged, that's where we need people to step in and, and get on their state board so they can start to say 
just start to ask questions like, hey, how come we only do this or how come we only do that? And why are these people telling us what to do? When you start asking those questions, people kind of go, oh, wow, we haven't been questioned in 30 years. We've just been doing whatever we want until now. Mm -hmm. And that's where we need people to start to step up. Yeah, and I guess to kind of dig into that a little bit, there's a, a you know, that I had a, I had a little bit, it wasn't bad, but a little bit of running with the National Board of Life. Anyway, so there's this thing going on. So I had to figure out who's the highest ranking guy on campus right now representing the National Board. So I find this guy. So then I decide, well, I can Google search him. I'm going to look him up. Because in my head, I thought, I bet you I could give him a, I could profile him before I've even looked him up. So then I look him up and the profile is exactly what I would have expected. Um, outside the national board, he's basically a nobody. Um, he's, he's running, a, he just runs a practice. Um, but his style of practice is very predictable. Um, a lot of therapies, um, a little bit of chiropractic, mostly. So there's a certain mentality of that. And I don't think that that would vary from campus to campus that generally who the national board is going to put in there is that kind of a person because right. the national board pushes that kind of a practice. Right. And I think that's where people get into it and they go, well, how is it that you can graduate and get and do the national board and get a license and you know a whole bunch of orthopedic and neurological tests, but you've never actually successfully done an adjustment. Right. Like isn't right. that where there's a gap? <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's where, you know, people the problem is, and what this is one of the things that we faced from a state from a board standpoint that I just didn't it was towards the end of my term is towards the end of my eight years. And there's only so much you can get done. And so uh, once, once I turned out, then the people behind me had their own ideas of what they wanted to do. And so one of the things that we talk about in our profession is, especially from a Gonstead point of view is the use of x-rays for mm -hmm. a chiropractic analysis, not just for red flags. Right. And the right. ACA has been all over this and they kind of make, and the schools don't let the students take x-rays anymore. And so, from a, from a board perspective, we were very concerned that these graduates are coming out into the field and they don't know how to read an x-ray. They don't know how to use an x-ray. Um, and that's really a danger to public health. And so uh, we were at a meeting, I believe it was in Phoenix. I can't remember the annual uh, FCLB, Federation of Chiropractic Licensing Boards slash NBCE National Board. Uh, we were at the annual meeting one year and this issue came up and Dr. Terry Yoakum, who we all know, uh, the, mm -hmm. the godfather of chiropractic x-rays, he stood up in front of the whole crowd and he was just lambasting the CCE. And he had the same concern that, that students nowadays don't understand how to use an x-ray for chiropractic purposes. And that's unacceptable. And I mean, he just went off and we're all sitting there going, yes. I mean, here's Terry <laughs> Oakham saying, you know, we got to get back to taking x-rays. They're not harmful. We need to use these x-rays. And everybody, every, every patient should have full spine x-rays because we're thrusting on the spine. We need to be safe about it and be efficient about it and actually correct problems. And so that was a big thing that came up. And what, what, I, what, what I realized was that if, if, if we want to control that narrative, then as a state board, we can institute policies that say, hey, every student has to have 20 sets of x-rays while they're in school. We can pick a number and we can say, or every student has to have 10 full spine workups in school and we need documentation of that. All it takes is one state to say that and the schools have to teach it. And mm -hmm. so 
we have we have allowed <laughs> I was thinking about this this morning we've allowed the chiropractic apologists mm-hmm. to be in control they apologize for chiropractic on every level they get the chance I'm sorry that we take x-rays I'm sorry that we adjust anymore I'm sorry that we see kids we shouldn't do that I'm sorry that we help people with visceral conditions we probably shouldn't do that either you know maybe we'll just get stuck in this little um, free visit pain model. And if that doesn't work, you're right. We'll, we'll just send everybody out. So unfortunately, too many of these chiropractic apologists are in con, are in positions of, of control many times because they don't have a successful practice. So the problem that we see is that when you when you have somebody who's successful in practice uh, and I was and I am, too, and I was at the time, it's hard to it's hard to pull somebody away from that and say, hey, you're going to need to devote you know, uh, several thousands of dollars a year in your time away from your practice to help to help things for the next generation. Um, that does get challenging because people say, man, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, several hundred people a week. I don't have time to go to a board meeting. It's I take a day off a month or a day off every two months. Um, but it, it's definitely needed. So you unfortunately you get and i'm not saying that everybody in regulation or testing i'm not saying that none of those people are successful in practice because i met a lot i met a lot of people who were very successful in practice but we just need more of those people to say you know i'm willing to give up a little bit now to make things better in the future yeah you know it's the same vacuum you get in a school is that you would like to have people who have busy successful practices doing the teaching but they can't because they're not available. They're too busy having busy successful practices. Right. So then there's a vacuum. And who's easiest to fill that vacuum? Somebody who's sitting around twiddling their thumbs doing nothing. So right. it's not like it's built that way. That just tends up being right. what it is because there is a vacuum. There's a need and it will be filled. Right. And it happens in every profession. I've got, and as you know, you've got, we all have colleagues at you know, dentistry. And I think your wife's a dentist, right? Yes. Yep. So we, yep. we have colleagues in different fields and and uh, I've got a friend right now who's the dean of the dental school here in Oklahoma. They have the same issues of trying to get qualified, successful practitioners back in the schools. And it's not just chiropractic. It's, it's even in medical school. It's, it's everywhere. But unfortunately, what I've seen in, in our profession is that, as we all know, we, we kind of implode when we can. We, we attack each other. And I, I still never have really understood that. I, I you know, so my mentor, uh, and, and also he mentored Dr. David Waller, who's a friend of ours and a Godstead mm-hmm. guy. Uh, we were fortunate enough to get mentored by Dr. Larry Landers, who was a longtime Godstead practitioner in East Texas. And he was a 1961 grad of Palmer. And so he spent a lot of time with Dr. Gonstead, both as a, as a doctor, and he also went up there as a paying patient even when he was a chiropractor. So he had a lot of time with Dr. Gonstead. So we met, he was our mentor for many years. Um, Dr. Gonstead told, or Dr. Landers told us when he graduated school in 61 and went back to Texas to practice, he said, what was unique about that time was that every chiropractor in that he knew in Texas, and he was involved in the Texas association. So they had district meetings all the time and they were involved in the politics back then. And he said, no matter what school anybody graduated from, whether it was national back then or any of the, the mixer schools is what they called them, they all still agreed that 
the foundation of chiropractic was the correction of subluxation. Mm-hmm. And so they all agreed on that. Now, some people did therapy, some people did nutrition, some people did other ancillary modalities, but the core focus of that practice was the location and correction of subluxation. And they all stood together on that. And so I think we have to get back to that. And if there's people that are standing in the way of that, then we've got to replace them. And we need good people to stand up and say, you know, it's worth it because I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that says the sky is falling. There's a lot of good things that are happening in our profession. And there's a lot of things to be excited about. But I think we also have to be mindful that we've got to step in. A few of us need to step in and say, we're just going to make sure. We're going to make sure that we can, that my grandkids can get a good solid adjustment 40 years from now. And so I hope people will, will say, you know what, it's, it's my time to at least ask those questions about how can I serve, whether it's on the board, whether it's through your association, whether it's at a school, we just got to get those engaged however we can. Yeah, you're right. I am. I, I, for me, going to a school where, well, I read a lot of green books. I was probably the only person in school who did because of where I went. Um, and so I saw that um, I, I could see that the mixers were doing the same thing as the straights. They were just adding more to it. It was like out of practice. They're just going to add to it. Um, right. And so to be then, for myself to be in a school where we weren't allowed to say subluxation on campus, uh, we were told that it didn't matter how you move the bone as long as you moved it. We were told that x-rays were of no value to a chiropractor except for pathology. And that's not just being a mixer. That's something entirely different. And the really sad part, yeah, and the sad part is now to see students graduating from there and they believe that they're being taught all this this stuff, but then they get in practice and they struggle because they don't know how to get anybody better. And then when you go to try to tell them, well, we're doing it, we'll show you, what you get is pushback. Because, well, no, my school said, and you're like, no, but your school has already failed you. Haven't you figured that out? (laughs) So it's to me, that's the frustrating part is we need more good chiropractors, not just more chiropractors, but ones who actually know how to do chiropractic. And that's where there's going to be a struggle because I think, well, I know if we go back to the story, and I told it in a previous podcast about how the CCE was first formed. But at the time that it was formed, there was um, the the country was probably 80% straight chiropractors, if not more so. And a very small percentage were mixers. Um, but because the CCE came in, they pulled a little deception and they became the dominant force. Mm-hmm. They slowly transitioned that to where I would say at this point, probably, I don't know what you think, maybe 70, 80% are mixers somewhere in there. Oh, yeah, so, most likely. Yeah. So it's really yeah. transitioned it over. And yet, as it's done that, the potency of chiropractic has gone down, down, down. Right. And that's a sad thing to see. Well, you're exactly right. And I think the argument. You know, the argument of straight versus mixer is it's it's gone. I mean, like we we we're we're past that. Uh, the argument needs to be now: uh, should we even analyze and adjust the spine mm-hmm. for for the correction of subluxation, nerve interference? Um, I think I think that's our battleground now. Is that we're we're having to fight for that, not even mixer or straight. It's again the the chiropractic apologists are trying to run people like us out. And I, it still just baffles me because of anybody who's been in practice for any length of time that is decent at what they do. 
I mean, you see those changes. I'm not even going to call them miracles because I hate that term. They're not miracles. They're, they're the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's not a miracle. It's not a faith healing. It's I analyzed the spine. I made a correction and, and things, good things happened. And so uh, we're in the fight for that. And, and, if, and if anybody's been in practice any time at all, even if you just said, I'm going to take care of low back pain and you adjust a subluxation, they come back in three days and go, man, I'm not constipated anymore. I mean, it, it happens no matter if you want it to or not. I mean, and so for people to, den to deny that, to me, it's, it's either they, they just never were taught it or they're just, I think some people get into our profession and they end up with, with a good term is called buyer's remorse. So mm -hmm. they, they get into it. There's, there's not a soul on the planet that can go into chiropractic thinking, I'm going to be a surgeon or I'm going to be an, uh, I'm going to prescribe all these medications to my patients. I mean, if, if you're, if you, I mean, everybody knows going into chiropractic what we do. And I think some people choose that path because it, maybe it's a little easier for them and they, maybe they couldn't get into medical school or they thought chiropractic was going to be a great way to make money. And then they failed in practice. And so they decide, well, I'm going to change chiropractic to fit what I want. Um, that's buyer's remorse. They, 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 they're trying to change something that they just screwed up. And so um, they don't realize there's a field called osteopathy that, that does everything that they want. And that's totally fine. You, you can go do that and you don't have to change anything. You can just practice however you want. And if you want to stitch somebody up or give them a muscle relaxer, feel free to do it, but it's not chiropractic. And we have the apologists and we have those with buyer's remorse. And unfortunately, those are the majority of the people who are in those leadership positions. And I think most of them started out noble and good. But then somewhere they changed and now they're on a, on a path to basically destroy what we all love. And, you know, that's where we've got to step up and, and have good people say, you know, I'm willing to at least try in what little way that I can to, to protect and promote what it is that we love without watering it down. Yeah. I used to, I remember I used to see people that um, their basic, thought process it seemed was I've never seen the results therefore the results must not exist and I always thought that's like the highest form of narcissism I've ever heard of that's like me saying I've never seen a kangaroo in person therefore they're wrong and every Australian's a liar <laughs> that makes yeah. no sense yeah no you're <laughs> exactly right yeah. that's exactly right and um but I will say you know that when I got involved with the state boards I, it, and again when I got involved when I got on the state board like I said, I had a, I had a really small reason for getting on the board was just to protect the scope of our state, of our state law. What I learned is that there's a, we were, we were, we were connected to a nationwide, even worldwide federation of licensing boards, the FCLB, Federation of Chiropractic Licensing Boards. And what that allowed us to do was network with other boards around the country and some even international boards of Hey, what are you guys dealing with? What are you guys seeing? What are some issues that you have from a regulation standpoint? And what was, what was very, very heartwarming to me was that I met so many good people who were there for the right reasons um, to, to protect what it is that we love. And there's still a ton of them out there. 
Um, unfortunately, you don't hear about that because it doesn't it doesn't make the headlines. It doesn't make the stories that we hear. But there's a there's a very good base of people out there, regulators, chiropractors, who don't want to see us go down that third tier medical route, and they are the ones that are 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 capable of creating the change. I'm telling you, if people just understood that if as a regulator on a state board, you have the power. And, and if we can just get that across to people to say, look, if you can do that, even if it's just one small change, if we had one small change in every state across the country, over time, that starts to create, that starts to change the narrative of testing, accreditation, what the schools teach. Um, it changes everything. And we yeah. can do it. Yep. Well, and I think that's a great segue to what I was going to talk about next, which is this um, very real fight for x-rays. Mm -hmm. Because um, it's actually the reason why uh, Roger Coleman and Mark Lopes have been doing so much x-ray research for GCSS, which doesn't just benefit us as a Gonset community. It benefits the whole mm -hmm. profession by demonstrating what x-rays do and how they work and what we can do with them. Mm -hmm. But in the end, regulators don't necessarily have to follow the science if they don't want right. to. Um, and so... That's why it's a real fight that everybody who's in the profession needs to be somewhat involved with. Because if you want to have the right to shoot x-rays and you want to retain that, you have to fight against these people who are trying to push, get rid of it. So maybe if you could, um, I don't know if you can do this, but if you can kind of explain to people what, the, if you understand what those people's motivation is, why they want to get rid of x-rays and, and help them understand why they need to fight against that and how to recognize right. it when they see it coming. You know, it's interesting because uh, when we served, when I served on the board and we were involved with the FCLB, um, I, I didn't talk to, I didn't talk to one fellow regulator, no matter practice style, philosophy, where they went to school. I didn't, I never talked to one regulator that wanted to do away with x-ray. So it wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't, none of that push came from the regulators. And so uh, when, when I was state board president, I I'm only about three hours from Parker. So we, we work a lot with the Parker students. They'll come up here and shadow me or I'll go down. We'll go down to the campus. Dr. Waller and I, Dr. Prince, a few other guys will go down and help the, help the students. And I kept getting these questions about x-ray and they were very frustrated. And so as state board president, I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to write a letter because now I can. And they'll, they'll, they'll have to answer me because I can, I can control a little bit, a small little bit. And so, uh, this was, I wrote a letter to Parker. They were in between presidents. I believe Dr. McCauley had just been, had left the campus and it was in between when they were waiting to hire their next president. I believe it's Dr. Morgan now, but this was in that interim period. So I wrote a letter to uh, the, the, the acting president, I believe it was Ashley Cleveland, Dr. Cleveland. And so I wrote a letter and just said, hey, I don't know what the whole story is because I'm not on your campus, but here's the here's the comments that we're getting from students that they're not allowed to take x-rays. They're not allowed to read x-rays uh, and they're concerned that when they graduate, they're going to be ill-equipped to take care of patients. And uh, so I just asked those questions like, hey, tell me what's going on. Da, 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 da. And so she sent me a nice response and she basically said that it was all the CCE. And that they would they would get basically they would get in trouble if they had too many X-ray credits per student according to the CCE. Okay, thank you. Fair enough. Thanks for answering my questions. 
So my next course was I wrote a letter to the, the CCE and the president of the CCE, Dr. Craig Little, and I saved the letters. I, I should publish those at some point now that I can, but uh, his response was, well, we don't tell the schools what to do as far as x-ray. We have standards of care that minimum standards of competency that every school has to meet, but we don't tell schools they're going to be in trouble if they have, if they x-ray their patients. And so here you have a school saying it's a CCE and the CCE saying, we don't tell the schools what to do. So every, it's a blame game. Everybody's just blaming each other. Um, I don't know if it comes down to maybe the malpractice companies that cover the school. Maybe there's, I don't, and I didn't reach out to any of those people, but maybe they're saying, Hey, you can't take that many x-rays. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know why they would, cause they don't limit us in practice. Uh, you can x-ray everybody that walks in your door and I've never been told I couldn't. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really an interesting dynamic. I don't know where it's coming from. Uh, I really don't. And I tried to find that out, but I never got the real answer. Um, I think, I think what it is is that the schools get scared that they're going to lose accreditation and they just feel like they're going to get in trouble. And mm -hmm. because if they get in trouble, then that's bad for everybody that works at the school. And I understand that it's a business they have to run. They can't go out of business. They can't get on probation because then no students will come. So I think we've just gotten into this area where um, everybody's scared to do anything. You know, I'm going to yeah. get slapped on the wrist. And so, um, but we're also, we're also in a time where around the country and around the world where we're in this, this movement where you can't, you can't limit what I do, right? We all have freedom of expression, freedom of speech. Uh, you know, uh, you can't, you can't bully me. You can't dis discriminate against me. And I think as chiropractors, we forget that, that uh, we shouldn't allow people to discriminate against how we practice. We're not hurting the public. Um, in fact, one of the things that I, I brought up uh, in, in talking about like policies like x-ray, um, are, are there a lot of complaints by the patient and by the public to the licensing board? Are people being harmed by x-rays? No, there's no, nobody's filing complaints saying, oh my gosh, this chiropractor took three x-rays of me. Now I have cancer. <laughs> Nobody's doing that, you know? Because uh, if that's the case, then every dentist would have malpractice cases too because they x-rayed the, the head. Yep. And so <laughs> I think we've just gotten in this cycle of apathy maybe, or I don't know, but it's, it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be allowed to, to keep happening. And so I think our regulators just have to stand up and say, look, we're, we, you know, and even the States could even say, Hey, we're going to take the national board exams and all that, but we're also going to give you you also have to take our state x-ray exam. I mean, there's so many things that could happen where the states now say, look, we're not, com we're not comfortable in the, <laughs> the ability of these students to read x-rays from a chiropractic standpoint that, <coughs> excuse me, you're going to have to take our x-ray practicum in addition to our jurisprudence exa exam to get your license. That's all it would take. That's how it is in California, actually. So with our chiropractic license, we don't get to shoot x-rays. We have to get a supervisor operator permit, which is the same thing a radiologist would have. And when I took my test, I had a surgeon next to me and a, somebody else on the other side. And it's the same test for everybody. And then 
once you take that, you're a supervisor operator, which means that I can shoot any x-ray I want. I'm qualified. It's a test on the physics. It's a test on the re it's a test on all of it. And so I can shoot my own x-rays. I also can have um, somebody with a tech, with a rad tech mm -hmm. license underneath me. So I have the same, right. same rights that a radiologist would have. And so that's how they do it. We have to get extra CEs in radiology and you have to renew that license in addition right. to the other ones. So, which, which I have no problem with that now. And I think if, and if every state did that, it would at least create this awareness that, Hey, why, why do we have to do all this extra work? I mean, you should, you should come out of your school and the national boards fully prepared. Um, and I think I would add to that, that you also have to have a, a <clears throat> you also have to analyze a handful of cases from a chiropractic standpoint on an x-ray of what we're, what are we looking at? And so if, if more states would just institute that, the schools would have to start teaching. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have a choice. Because again, like I said, the only people that issue licenses are the state boards. Uh, we don't care what the CCE says. We don't care what the national boards say. We're the ones that issue and regulate that license. And so if we're not comfortable with it, we can change that. We can change the story of what has to be taught to these students, no matter what school they go to. Yeah, if I, if I put on my tinfoil conspiracy theorist hat, um, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the West Hartford group and their oh, attempts yeah. to oh, yeah. lobby yeah. people. Okay, so I'm, I've wondered if there are schools, uh, obviously I'm in mm -hmm. California, so we can figure out who I'm applying, but I've wondered <laughs> if there are schools that have an idea of how they want to practice or how they want chiropractors to practice. Mm -hmm. So they try to push one of their own onto the board, which sure. California, as a California chiropractor, we have no say, no influence whatsoever on who's on our board. So right. that just kind of happens behind the scenes. But I, I realized that they could push their own people as, oh, they're an educator. They know they should be in regulation, push them on the board, and then have the board tweak the laws in order to match what they're doing. And I, I have no doubt that happens in California, but I would issue that as a warning for other states that that's a reason right. why you want to be on your board. You want to get good people on your board. And you want to try, especially if you have a school in your state, to keep the schools from influencing what the board does to make their lives the way they want them. Right. And I think if you had that scenario where if it was almost impossible to get a seat on that board, um, you know, you have to threaten lawsuits because there, there's these boards are made up of practicing chiropractors and, and public members. Um, and so if it's a, if it's a closed monopoly system where only, only that we control who gets on there, which is, which is really what's happened with the national board of chiropractic examiners. They've created the system where, um, most, most people have no chance of getting on that board unless they are, part of the club. And that's why mm -hmm. the, the issues perpetuate at the national board. And I, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to pick on those people, but it's just what happens. Um, mm -hmm. The same thing happens in certain States where it's, it's a very closed loop system and you're not going to break through uh, unless you're part of that group. And so th those are the, those are the questions that have to be asked. Like, well, how come I can't, how come I can't apply or how come I can't get a chance to be on that board and if nobody can give you a good answer, then, you know, that's that's where the, the antitrust issues come into effect. Like what happened in North Carolina with the dental board years ago, that lawsuit that went to the Supreme Court, uh, they got busted up because there was a the monopoly on what they were doing to their profession. And so it, it somewhat happens with us, too. And that's why people just have to demand change and say, look, if you're not going to change it the right way, then 
we'll just file the, 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 the profession can file a suit against the state board and they have to defend it. And if once you get it out into the public domain and it now becomes an open record, you can, you can actually create some change that way. And the, and the associations would have to be, if you had a good, strong association, they could, they could easily get that done. They could have an attorney write a letter and say, look, if you don't make some changes, we're going to go ahead with a, with a, with a suit and just get it out in the public record. And people, people would be shocked if they knew what was really going on. Um, it's usually there's money involved. There's, there's a lot of politicking involved. There's a lot of backroom deals that are being done. Um, but when you bring it out into the open, they have to defend it. Well, that's the thing about the national board. They have such tremendous wealth and yet every penny they have came from student loans, which are taxpayer funded. So, um, that's a, it's an incredible amount of money that they've stacked up. So, so at one of our annual meetings, I went to the national board, um, financial presentation, you know, the, that they go over their, their, um, their, their yearly, they go over their finances, if you will. And so I went and sat in that class and I was, I was president of the state board. And unfortunately there were maybe six or seven people in that session because people just, they didn't, they, they, they're going to other things. And when we were in that class, they were going over their, their finances and what they, what they showed on the screen was that they, they currently at this point, at that point, which was maybe six or seven years ago, they had $30 million in savings, three zero. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And that all came from testing fees. And so their goal was to get $50 million in savings for what they called a catastrophic event. And once the presentation was over, I raised my hand and I said, well, what's a catastrophic event? And why do you need that much money to, to, why do you need that kind of money in savings? Uh, and they said, well, if there was a catastrophic event, we, we need enough money to test all the current students that are in the program so that they can take their national boards. And I, and I still kept trying to understand, I, everybody pays for their tests. So, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the answer didn't make any sense. And now I, now I agree that any good business has to have a rainy day fund. You have to have some money in savings to cover expenses, but 50 million, that's just a lot of money that these students are having to pay. And so the question I then asked, I said, okay, when you, when you hit your savings benchmark, that $50 million at that point, are you going to reduce the price of these exams? Or are you going to start not charging for these exams or how, what are you going to do? Because now you've reached this level that you want. So, so then what? And they literally couldn't answer that question. They, they, they flat out told me we'll have to, uh, we'll have to discuss that when we get there. And so what happened was several years ago, there was, there's always turmoil on the, on those national boards because there's a lot of fighting and there's a lot of money involved. And, and there was a, a good friend of mine who was asking those questions and he served on the national board. Uh, he, he was just disgusted at the amount of money that's being taken from these students and, you know, lavish dinners are paid for, you know, thousand dollar bottles of wine are being bought. And I know this cause I've seen it happen and it's paid for by the national board and they, they, their directors make 
thousands of dollars a year, a year in travel and per diem. In fact, a lot of the people on those boards, they don't hardly practice anymore. So that's their source of income and they don't want to lose that. And that's why you get all this. There's always scandals that happen because they don't want to turn it loose. And so mm -hmm. one of my friends was questioning that. Well, they ran him off the board. They found a way to get rid of him. And you're just going, man, he was trying to say, look, this isn't right. We need to cut the exam fees in half and not charge these students this much. And boy, they didn't like that. <laughs> they don't mess with the piggy bank. That's right. That's right. That is the underlying principle. Yeah. But well, again, as, as state board regulators, you, you have, you have an ability to create that at least create the narrative to say, look, maybe we can have a, an alternative or a, or a, uh, uh, not an alternative, but maybe we can have another way to examine these students to make sure they're fit for practice. And so uh, competition's healthy, but unfortunately in our regulation profession, we don't have a whole lot of competition. So if you can just create a little competition, uh, it would make everybody more honest. And I think that's where as regulators, state board people, uh, man, if we could get a Gonstetter on every state board, wow. I mean, it <laughs> would just, it wouldn't change overnight, but it would create it would create change over time. And well, I just hope, I hope we can at least get a few states to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to step up and do that. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be great. Well, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. I know I'm going to probably get a lot of questions from people, so I will definitely have you back on yeah. because I know that we could probably go for another hour or two or three yeah. just because this is that un, unexposed world, but yeah. it's part of our profession and people need to know what's happening behind sure. the scenes. Well, I've enjoyed talking with you and uh, I guess I'll be seeing you soon at meeting of the minds. I hope other people show right. up and yep. uh, we'll just keep collaborating. And you know, we're, we're, we have a lot of good things going for us and we just need to build on that. So I'm happy to do whatever I can to help. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. All right. Have a good day. You too. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Waddell for joining me. This is a topic that we rarely discuss. That being the case, if you have any questions, please pass them along to me, and I'll have Dr. Waddell back on so we can answer them. I'm looking forward to seeing Dr. Waddell and many others in just a few weeks at the Gonstead Media of the Minds. We'll be doing a student workshop on Friday, October 14th, followed by the actual seminar on October 15th and 16th at Cleveland University. For more information about the Media of the Minds or anything else related to the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society, you can find us at gonstead.com. That's G-O-N-S-T-E-A-D. Well, I do hope you found this episode informative, and I hope it inspired you to want to get more active in politics as well. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.